Frog Colours, episode 32 of Herpetological Highlights, is upon us. And yeah, this week we're talking about frog coloration and sort of frog camouflage, frog aposemitism, and a couple of studies which look at the ways in which frogs are quite sneaky, um, all kind of obvious, and how that relates to the way their predators perceive them. I'm Tom Major, and co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall, as always. Yeah, frog colours. It's a little bit of a callback all the way back to episode one that we did with colours, was it not? Yeah, we did. It was called Cool Colours and Cryptic Camo. Camo. And it was like... Yes. Camo. It was Camo short for camouflage. <laughs> camouflage. <laughs> As if we had some kind of limitation on the amount of letters we were allowed. I don't know why we did that, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this is an episode which is suggested by one of our Patreons, Richard Southworth. Uh, so thank you very much, Richard, for suggesting this. Um, really cool topic, and especially one of the papers we're looking at. Um, actually, I mean, that's doing a disservice to the other yeah, one. Yeah, man. They're, they're both, both really, really cool. Really neat. But yeah, as I say, suggested by Richard Southworth, who is one of our Patreons, one of the um, Decider of Topics Patreons. So um, if you want to have your very own topic in an episode of the podcast then um yeah that's what you got to do donate three dollars a month and you can you can have exactly that um we have also got to thank a new patreon actually while we're on the subject of patreons uh we've got a new one called robert robin van dyke excellent Who's, thank you robert um, robin it's robin i immediately got your name wrong that's amazing that was <laughs> sorry a, a gap of zero seconds <laughs> it's clearly oh, sorry not robert it's robin but yeah, Robin Van Dyke, so thanks. We're only $2 away now from reaching our target. Yes. So um, you could be the difference, listener. You, I'm speaking to you directly. You know who you are. Me? Uh, yeah. No, not you. Oh. Like, no, the listener. Sad. And um, <laughs> yeah, F- frog coloration. I mean, um, we're not really frog people necessarily, are we? I don't consider myself a frog person. No, I'm mostly human. But I do quite like mm. frogs, although I'm largely ignorant of the ins and outs of frogs. Yeah. I like frogs in the kind of way that like you see a pretty thing and you enjoy it, rather than actually understanding it. Oh, yeah. But the beauty of science is that you don't have to know everything about everything, because there are talented people working it out for you and writing it up in rather nicely written, coherent uh, scientific papers. Yeah. And even more to the point, yeah, you've got other scientists peer reviewing it who presumably also know about frogs to make sure that it's not comp- uh, complete bunkum. Hmm. Whatever bunkum is, I'm hoping it's not that. <sighs> yeah. What does bunkum mean? I. What is bunkum? I, I don't think I've ever used it before, but it's definitely a term that people say. <laughs> <laughs> who says that and where? Bunkum. <laughs> In what? In what bunkum? Bunkum. Bunkum. Yeah. It's, um, it's a word. Mm, yeah, it means, it means nonsense. Yeah? Even Google is describing it as informal and dated. <laughs> oh. Thanks, Google. <laughs> get with the times. <laughs> um, anyway, should we, um, should we talk about the first paper? Yes. Yes, let's do that. Yeah. Uh, so, first paper, I'm guessing is the one by Barnett, uh, Michalis, Scott Samuel, and Cut Hill, published in 2018 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, 
which is and was titled Distance Dependent Defensive Coloration in the Poison Frog Dendrobates uh, Tintorius? Tinctorius? Dendrobates. That'll be the one. Yeah. Yeah. So, pretty much, we are looking at one of the coolest frog families there is. And I don't think there's many people who will fight me on that. No. It depends what you like. If you just, if you think you, you know, if you're a big fan of ginormous frogs, then you're not going to like these because they're, you know, they're like thumbnail sized or a little bit bigger. Maybe, you know, a generous thumb. But yeah, they're crazy looking. So Dendrobatidae are the so-called poison dart frogs. Mm. So they are cool. And um, But they've got everything. Yeah. They're, they're sort of cute. They come in a diverse array of colours. Uh, they've got cool toxins and things going on. They've had historical sort of interactions with humans in a sort of cultural sense. What more could you ask of a frog family? Yeah, you're right. They are. They've got it all. They are. They are really, really interesting. And this particular one you said, uh, Dendrobates tinctorius, is called the dying poison arrow frog. Um, not because they die. They do die. Everything dies. But this frog is, you know, spelt D-Y-E-I-N-G, as in like being turned a different color. Mm. dying uh i don't know why they called that but they're from lowland forest of the guyanas and next door in brazil and um yeah they're really pretty little frogs the ones that this paper focuses on which is um the frogs from french guyanas norages natural reserve they're kind of like bluey black base color like a almost like a matte blue color yeah. and uh, yeah. on their back they've got this big yellow ring which apparently is quite variable. It can be sort of like just a sort of oval ring, and other times it's a figure of eight. So it's not a consistent ring. They, you know, they're they've got a little bit of um, variety in their dorsal colouring, but yeah, the base colour is brownie black, and uh, yeah, this yellow ring on the back. Mm. But am I right in saying that there is sort of yeah phenotypic uh, variation? Yes, there is, yeah. And um, they, as a species, Tinctorius is pretty varied. Like, if you Google, if you were to just type into... I know it's a dangerous thing to do, but um, if you did just type into Google Dendrobates Tinctorius, you get all manner of different-looking frogs, um, <laughs> which, admittedly, some probably aren't Tinctorius, but, um, yeah. Some of them have, like, you know, white on the sides and black spots on the arms and things like that whereas others are sort of much more plain and it really does depend yeah yes i have just done exactly that and there are things popping up that are most certainly not the species we are discussing (laughs) no 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 No. but there are plenty that are yeah there are they're actually really awesome they're one of my favorite dart frogs i really like them stunning Um, absolutely stunning yeah yeah so they were the focus of this paper because essentially in traditional thought, you've got different kinds of animal coloration, right? You've got camouflage, um, which is associated with like ma- matching the background, hiding away from predators. And then on the other end of the scale, you've got aposematism, which, as you've described, these, these toads have toxins in their skin. And Frogs. this aposomatic... Did I say toads? Yeah, because what you actually want is to discuss discuss toads, but you've got to fight that <laughs> urge and talk about frogs. <laughs> Oh, for goodness sake. I love toads. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> these frogs, these frogs, toads, for goodness sake. These frogs um, 
On the opposite end of the scale are what's called aposomatic, which is where they have like really bright warning coloration and that reflects the toxicity in their skin. Except for there's been a suggestion that maybe you could potentially be both or there's like a continuum between looking really deadly and being camouflaged and animals exist kind of in the middle somewhere rather than being one or the other. Yes, it was it was interesting. I was expecting all the way through reading the introduction for one paper to pop up, um, which is the only time I've sort of previously read about this uh, interaction between potential cryptic shapes and how they can double up as aposomatic shapes. And that was paper by Worcester et al. in 2004, I think it is, if I just bring it up. Uh, yeah. And that was looking at uh, the European adder, Viperoberus, and basically showing that, the you know, they have that wonderful zigzag along their back. Yeah. It was basically saying that that's not just crypsis, or at least it plays in uh, a, some sort of a aposematism, uh, because basically what they did was grabbed a bunch of plasticine models, as we'll discuss in the future papers as well, is basically your go-to method of testing this, uh, with different patterns on them, all snake-shaped, uh, put them on different backgrounds that basically ne- negated the crypsis element, so they were plain white sheets of paper, stuff like that, but still showed that the ones without markings were more frequently attacked than the ones with markings, even though they were equally as view- visible on the uh, paper. And, also interestingly, the ones with the zigzags tended to be attacked from the head end, and the ones without the markings tended to be attacked from the tail end. So, definitely, cool. the zigzags having a an effect on how predators are dealing with, or choosing to avoid, uh, different snakes with different markings. Cool, it's interesting to get that perspective in a snake rather than a frog. Yeah, because um, you think of snakes as being sort of very hard on one or the other, but here you have an adder that, mm. I don't know, I've always felt like adders, you look at them and you think, okay, that's crypsis, because it's breaking up the shape of uh, a snake, and it very much looks like the shadow that's left of bracken or, or some sort of spiky plant, Oh yeah, which is oh, yeah. usually above them, yeah. Whenever, whenever I'm looking for adders, seeing bits of bracken on the on the ground with like a stark contrast to the soil. If yeah. you see like a nice light light bit of bracken, it, it drives you mad. You just think, oh, adder every two seconds. Um, so yeah, I can definitely see that. It's interesting to hear they have both. As you brought up adders, um, I read a really cool paper which kind of loosely pertains to adders. There's, a, there's adders in it um, this week, which uh, <laughs> adders were mentioned. I know. Yeah, I just I love adders. Uh, I mean, we know we're supposed to be talking about frogs. It hasn't lasted very long, but we'll get on to adders first, and then we'll go back to the frogs. Um, so this is a paper by Valkanen et al., which is still in press. And um, essentially, they were in this island in Finland. Well, a group of islands called the Aland Islands. I've probably butchered the pronunciation of that because it's got a crazy uh, accent over the A, which I'm not familiar with. But um, yeah, these islands in Finland, they have the same native snakes as we have here in the UK. So they've got the adder, the grass snake and the smooth snake. Mm. But the population of the smooth snakes is actually an endangered population. It's really struggling. I mean, you know, smooth snakes are really protected here too. You know, they're not they're not doing especially well, given that they rely on quite a different habitat type. You know, they love the heathland and all that stuff. But um, 
what they were doing was they were looking at whether or not this Batesian mimicry that the smooth snakes have, which is the smooth snakes actually have evolved to resemble adders, um, which to me, I'm thinking, well, that's crazy. But if you see a photo of just like the head of a smooth snake and the head of an adder, they are actually pretty similar. And um, the idea of this study was to look at persecution of these snakes by people. And um, because they're mimicking adders, the suggestion was that people who were trying to kill adders were killing smooth snakes by accident. And actually the endangered population was suffering from looking like a adder, which is like a really toxic situation. Maladapted Batesian mimicry. Exactly that. That's what they were investigating, where they, you know, they've spent all these millions of years trying to look like adders, and now they're being punished for looking like adders. Oh. Um, and what? Yeah, it was brutal. And um, thankfully, I mean, they, they did this study by getting people to identify a species of snake uh, in photos. So they'd each be shown a photo of a grass snake, a smooth snake and an adder and asked, you know, what's this snake? And um, alongside that, they did a questionnaire about their sort of willingness to kill snakes. Thankfully... And um, it did kind of like begin to restore my faith in humanity a tiny bit. It was the vast majority. It was like 69% or something said they wouldn't actually kill a snake, which that's good. That's refreshing. It'd be better if that, yeah, it'd be better if that number was 100%, but 69 is not bad. Um, however, uh, 10% said they would kill any snake. <laughs> you know, they're just snake bashers. They're nice. proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. They were just like, any snake I see, I'll kill. Kill yeah, them all. Pretty. Rambo-esque, like, kill it's disease, he's breathing. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, that's a problem. You know, that's yeah. bloody, bloody Rambo's been let loose, hasn't he? That's, uh, well, mate, <laughs> with his snake vendor. I mean, how uncomfortable. You go there, you know. I mean, I, it's funny, like, even when we're surveying for Escalapian snakes, sometimes I'll get people like, oh, yeah, if we see one, we'll kill it for you. Don't worry, mate. It's like, yeah, cheers, pal. Like, that's really helpful. That's super positive. Um, but, yeah, like, I mean, you know, imagine being this, uh, you know, herpetologist doing a bit of citizen you know investigation trying to do some social science alongside herpetology which is something we're always saying is really really good um you know you're knocking on doors like hiya how do you feel about snakes i smash them (laughs) (laughs) i can picture it so vividly it's almost as if i've experienced this directly multiple times (laughs) yeah well yeah of course you have of course you have like i remember coming across that king cobra that 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 dude had bashed up and it was really sad, although I didn't really realise at the time, but then you, it died. But um, that's the story for another day. But yeah, so these snakes, 10% of people are killing them indiscriminately, but there's 20% of people, which is, you know, a fair a fair subset of the population who said, oh, I don't just kill any old snake, but I will kill vipers. I'll kill the Eurasian adder if I see one, if I recognise it, you know. So um, what these scientists did was they asked them to ID these three snakes, um... Harmless grass snakes, harmless smooth snakes, and the evil, much maligned Eurasian viper, aka adder. And what they found was that smooth snakes were actually ID'd as adders just as often as adders were ID'd correctly. Nice. So from that, what they realised was that, like, you know, among this 20% of the population which say they'll only kill adders, that actually means that there's 20% of the people are likely to also be killing smooth snakes by mistake yeah. because people aren't skilled enough at IDing snakes to differentiate. Um, and so, yeah, these new snakes being killed is, is an example of mistaken identity. And um, it's actually kind of doubling their chances or even tripling their chances of being murdered by people. Um, and so, yeah, as you said, 
you, you you know you said exactly what it is it's an example of batesian mimicry becoming maladaptive in a human dominated environment if we want to segue back to amphibians just coming off that yes. people misiding stuff uh and also being able to just cram a little bit of toad stuff in here go on then scram go on <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get back to amphibians by the way of toads Basically, okay, okay. Um, there's a very similar thing done in Australia where they were looking at whether people uh, deliberately target wildlife on roads. So they did the surveys and people were like, yeah, cane toads, I'll run them over. I do it all the time. I target them. But then they also went out and sat by roads and watched people target little models. Well, actually, I think in this, it was actually frozen cane toads that painted different colours. But... Whatever it was, it was a, a cane toad uh, model, quote unquote, and uh, people weren't hitting <laughs> they were them. painting frozen cane toads. <laughs> yeah, so what they had, they had. A... How do you explain that? That's <laughs> hilarious. Your spouse returns from work. Um, what? What's that? What's that you're doing? <laughs> oh, uh, don't mind me. <laughs> <laughs> the painted ones were meant to resemble the frogs, and then they had another. They had the smaller cane toads they painted to do the frogs, and then bigger cane toads oh, yeah. that they left natural. For the cane toads, they had a snake and a couple of control objects. <laughs> Easier than making a plasticine model, isn't it? Just paint one that's frozen. Why happens when it defrosts on a hot Australian road? Well, then it just sort of you, you kick it over to the side of the road, and yeah, I, I I don't know. I'm sure they just picked them up and uh, refroze them and used them the next day. Yeah, fair enough. But even but whatever. <laughs> I'm not going in too much detail here because basically the point was. People said they loved to run over toads, um, but the, the actual uh, watching people and seeing what they were targeting, there wasn't actually a significant difference between how frequently the toad was run over compared to uh, like frogs and snakes and stuff and uh, controls. So, uh, wow! So people just can't tell, and they're just actually just smashing everything. Well, there was certainly a disconnect between the survey results. And what they observed. Mm. Whether that would, you know, with larger sampling, different patterns would emerge. Who knows? But, you know. Mm. That's, that's for toads, Unless. which are amphibians. But they're not brightly coloured amphibians, unlike no. dendrobates. But isn't the cane toad much, much bigger than any other Australian toad? So surely that could be like, you could just discriminate based on size. And so maybe people were looking for a big old thing and that's what they were seeing. So they were just smashing them. Because, I mean, in your car, you can't really necessarily see, easily see what colour something is, can you? I mean, well, exactly. I think that's the uh, take-home message is um, don't try and do any sort of wildlife control from a speeding vehicle because you'll probably <laughs> get it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I was surveying for toads today, but all I saw were these orange moles. <laughs> <laughs> Hideous orange moles. Yeah, I smashed a lot of them. <laughs> Invasive orange moles. <laughs> oh. Terrible. Terrible. Uh, should we go back to our dendrobates? Yes, let's get, back on, let's get back on task here. Somewhere back towards task. Uh, so yeah, we were talking about their aposomatic coloration... And uh, the idea that they could potentially be, because other studies have kind of demonstrated in the past that at different distances, some frogs can be both camouflaged from far away and also aposomatic from up close. So it changes as you near them. 
Um, mm. And that's been shown for like plasticine models and other experiments, but it's not been tested on actual living, breathing organisms. So that's what these authors set out to do. Yes. Well, they set out to do that in several different ways, didn't they? So, yeah, you were going to say they used a few different techniques, didn't they? It was pretty damn thorough. They did. And I think we'll save people from the actual details of the methods because there's a lot of them. Yeah, they really went in hard. Like, you can see why this made it into PNAS. Like, seriously, yeah. they did three different things, and they were all pretty damn technical. So, really, the trio are, they did a, basically a computer model uh, that simulates what predators would see. So they had uh, frogs in environments and uh, basically viewed... Uh, Different light waves, different light waves? No, what's the right word? Electromagnetic, electromagnetic uh, wavelengths of light to see yeah. how that was reacting with the frogs. Because things like birds and different mammals will see different spectrums of light to what we do. So you need to test that explicitly because different predators may be seeing them in different ways. A biologically relevant quantification. Exactly. Exactly. Which is actually more your neck of the woods, isn't it? With... Uh, vision of yeah it was animals. it was once and i was reading this paper and it's cool because i've been out of that game for a few years i mean i was never massively in that game but i did some stuff on chameleons for my masters and um man like some amazing stuff has been published i was flicking through the bibliography of this and it's like whoa like because i did all that in 2014 2015 mm-hmm. and since then my days it's all kicking off sensory ecology is just burgeoning field with all these newfangled technological like you're just like you know, like you're talking about these computational models where you map the kind of cone catch quanta's of different species and then put it all through a filter and you can you know successfully work out what it is a bird would see and in this in this paper they had a few different animals didn't they they used uh, birds and they used a few different birds both with and without the uv spectrum in their vision yeah. they had a snake i mean when when i was doing it we were dying for a model of snake vision but there wasn't one in existence that we could find um and then they also used human vision, didn't they? Because that makes it easier to actually, like, sort of comprehend exactly what you're yes. seeing. And uh, mm. dichromatic mammal. So I'm presuming yeah. that is a mammal that is lacking red cones. Is that the one that's special for us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blue, yeah. So it would be like, um, no, it would be like yellow and... Mm, yellow I want to say blue. yellow and green. Yellow and blue. Yellow and blue. Yellow and green. Oh, I, I don't I can't know remember. what's inside animals. I know eyes. that dogs can only. I know, I know that dogs love going to the park because they can really only see like blue and green. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like their whole colours are there. They're like, oh my word, it's like four K out here. <laughs> yeah, if you put a dog in an orange room, it, it doesn't know what to do. It just they find up. it boring. <laughs> yeah, completely unsafe. They can't see anything. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> driving quickly insane. Yeah, no, it's just not fair. If you've bought yourself an orange room for your dog, dispose of it immediately. Yeah, need to sneak past a dog, we're all orange. (laughs) Unless you're in front of a blue background because they'll attack you for being so bland. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, it's probably not even true that dogs can only see... (laughs) I don't think it is. Yellow and... I don't even know if it is true. I just heard it once upon a time and yeah. No, I think the trick is that it's like the same way people can't distinguish between particular colours, right? It's just those colours appear synonymous. Yes. Right. But moving on. Yeah, that's it. 
anyway, yeah. So then, yeah. So they had this idea that they basically took these photos at with different um, with different filters uh, and with different lenses. So they had kind of a equivalent of what each of these predators would see. And then what they did was they changed the um, sort of spatial coarseness of the image mm. so that it was um, mimicking the different sort of um, degree of definition from further away. And what they found was that all the animals from far away couldn't pick out this frog, whereas when they were up close, they were like, oh, there's a frog. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty straightforward finding, really, wasn't it? And not yeah. super sort of uh, surprising, but it does start building what basically this whole paper is, is heading towards, that you basically have two systems or, or two purposes for the coloration and the patterning, one being crypsis and one being aposomatic. So closer you are, yep, frog very viewable. But further away, that colour and that pattern is acting in a slightly different way, or sort of complementary, I guess, because it's not like contrasting, because they're both there, um, and making the frog harder to see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the second thing they did um, was they, again, well, they used plasticine models. We've already talked about plasticine models a little bit today. And um, we're going to more. And they um, put out all these different plasticine models in three different colors, one representing a crazy obvious frog, which was yellow, one being a super sneaky frog, which is supposed to be camouflaged, stealth which frog. was yeah. stealth, stealth frog. Yeah, that was brown and black. And then they had the natural one, which is black with the yellow ring. And they put them on a variety of different backgrounds um to kind of represent both what would naturally occur and then how yeah. they would be predated if they stood out really obviously what did they have they had natural leaf litter they had a yep. paper square which was a square that was um the mean color basically of the leaf litter area so your yeah, color isn't having a having available. an effect it's just background patterning then they also had a piece of paper that was just a photograph of the leaf litter in that spot which is basically a control for having the frog on paper but removing the effect of losing the pattern yeah 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 which i hadn't yeah. heard of being and done before in a uh, uh color mimicry thing but um makes perfect sense yeah it does yeah it does it is logical um Oh yeah, and they had plain soil as well, didn't they? They just scraped the soil back. Oh yes, plain soil. Yes. And um, yeah, so what they found was the survival of the yellow and black one was dependent on the visual characteristics of the background. So the natural colours actually survived best over leaf litter, which is kind of what you'd expect, given the fact that that's where the frog evolved to hang out. Mm. Um Whereas yellow ones were kind of much more obvious in all colour backgrounds. And um, yeah, similar. Yeah, the, the brown and black stealth frog was also better on the um, natural backgrounds where it blended in. Yes, so basically what we're saying is the yellow frog, regardless of the background, was still, you know, the, the background didn't affect its um, visibility. Yeah? No. Yeah, exactly. It was always supremely obvious. So, in a similar sort of way that... Uh, uh, similar sort of ways 
when I was talking about the outer stuff, you've got a situation where the aposemitism there is a critical thing, whereas the previous the Worcester study removed the crypsis bit. We've still got the crypsis bit tested for here, but when you remove the crypsis bit, the aposemitism is still present. When the potential crypsis is there, the aposemitism is still present. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what the fro- yellow frogs are dependent on that, basically. If aposemitism fails, they're doomed. Yeah. Yeah, we're good? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so I'm um, sorry, I was just rereading it to make sure we were making some sense. That paragraph's a bit confusing, isn't it? The survival section. That's definitely the most confusing area of the paper. There's a lot of test results there. Exactly. And, uh, they, don't really, they don't really spell it out. The format of the journal will. Because of the way they do it, you go straight from intro to results, and then you go straight into discussion, and the methods are done separately. But at the same time, the results are slightly got a bit of methods mixed in just to make them readable. Yeah, comprehensible. So you get presented with a lot of information up front, and then immediately results after that information, which does take a couple of readings to make sure that you haven't misread significant differences or not. Because you also test, there's a lot of pairwise comparisons because you've got four different substrates with three different models. So that's a lot of combinations to be uh, testing and getting your head around. Um, yeah, yeah. They definitely did the best they could with the amount of data they were trying to spit out at you anyway. There's a lot of data. Um, it's great. I yeah. It. <laughs> but then the final one, the final way they tested to see whether or not these frogs were so you know, whether or not they were hard to see from far away and easy to see from close up, was they actually used the humble human as a test subject. Oh, yes. So they got 18, 18 bipedal hominins, and um, they asked them to look at a screen which had frogs hiding in various different situations in various different colours, and um, they tried to work out which ones were easy to see and which ones were difficult to see. And what mm. they found was that up close... The natural yellow and sort of blue and black pattern was very was sl- more slowly detected than plain yellow um, or frogs with more yellow, so like yellow and black. Um, but it was detected much faster than the stealth frogs. Um, yeah, that's what they're re- well, that's what they're measuring is reaction time from being shown the image to spotting the frog. Yeah, so yeah. up close the. Um, Although it wasn't as obvious as like a bright yellow frog, it was much more obvious than the stealth frog. So there is an there is evidence for that aposematism there. So it is like warning coloration. You know, yeah. it's designed designed. It's evolved to be noticed. So what you'd be um, suggesting but, with that is that the pure stealth frog, as we're calling it, if it was purely crypsis, if that's all the frog was really going for, you would expect a selective pressure to push towards that sort of coloration of just dark and hidden and sneaky. But we don't yep. have that, so no. So it's it's not the sneakiest possible, and it's not the most garish possible. Yeah. It's like a middle ground, and uh, when you see the results from far away, that all makes sense because from long distances, it took the human observers much longer to detect the wild coloration than it did with the plain yellow, which was very obvious, and they also spotted the reversed pattern, which is mostly yellow. And the plain blue black much more easily. So in actual fact, from far away, the natural pattern is the hardest to see, even more so than the stealth frog. Yes. But what was cool with this is they sort of 
expanded uh, upon this hypothesis by testing several other frogs that were sort of generated from the mean coloration of the normal coloration of, of frog A with the sort of uh, darker background with the markings in, in a brighter color. And that showed that they were as hard to see at a great distance, but also harder to see close up. So basically what this is suggesting is it's not just a pure color ratio thing or anything like that. It's not a, a color and background matching. It is some sort of combination of the coloration and pattern to get this very visible close and much less visible further away. And furthermore, it's sort of suggesting that the reason it's more... Basically, the pattern is is blending at a greater distance to have a similar sort of result as if the entire frog was a colour that blended well into the background. Yeah. yeah. That's making sense, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, of all the ones they created, the one which nature has selected is actually the best it has the it has the best balance doesn't it because that's the trick there are yeah. ones that are better at being aposematic because they're all very very low yeah. re, uh, reaction times and then there are ones yeah. that are sort of average plain colors um mm-hmm. based on the natural one that are harder to see when further away but completely fail with the aposematism number one because they're taking longer to be seen but secondly there's no patterning or bright colours to work as aposematism. No. So, it, no. yeah, it is an interesting balance and trade-off. And yeah. how it's actually doing both simultaneously is pretty awesome. Yeah, I honestly, it blew my mind when I heard about this. I couldn't believe it. The fact that you can be both, you know, it's mad. So, um, yeah, this frog is ex- exceptionally high-tech and, uh, yeah massive new respect for them and it's kind of funny because you'd think if you were going to be surveying for a frog that was aposomatic you'd be laughing you'd be spotting them all over the place but as it turns out their detectability probably isn't actually all that high because they're really hard to spot from far away yeah until you get close and then then, then the frog is specifically tailored (laughs) to be spotted so i guess you just have to run around and uh, bump into trees and leaves and have the frog right up in your face yeah yeah very cool. So, um, yeah, should we move on to the second paper? Well, as before we do, and sort of as a sort of segue, is that so they've discovered this cool, I suppose, duality with the coloration in this frog, which is awesome, absolutely fantastic. But what the the problem it now poses is how do you start digging into the different selective pressures that are creating that pattern and that coloration? We've discussed a lot about it in a in a sort of predation setting. You, you know, predation is what you think of when you're dealing with aposematism and when you're dealing with crypsis. But you're going to talk to me about sexual selection. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention sexual selection. I'm gonna mention how on earth these uh, patterns and different colours would react in different environments or different lights. When you're even dealing with different predators that may be seeing different colours, there is a whole sort of extra layer to this that it isn't just well it might not be just driven by predation and certainly that predation is not going to be consistent over time nor in different environments so how do you start unpicking that to something that uh yeah 
it, it just like it opens a whole Pandora's box of more questions of how they've come to be so well balanced between these what you'd suspect as being very opposing solutions. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because there is a frog in, what is it? Uh, it's called Ufega pumilio, which is um, a Panamanian frog. And um, yeah, there was a paper by Mann and Cummings, and they found that this is a frog which is like really, really brightly coloured. Um, I'm not actually sure. Hang on a sec, I'm going to Google it. I don't even know what it looks like. Ooh! Spicy. What is it? I've got a. You, you can't it's, uh, leave me without reaction and not. <laughs> it's um. It's a. Spro- it's called the strawberry poison arrow frog, and it's like bright red with blue legs and feet. And um. Anyway, yeah. There's this paper where they found that uh, these frogs. Um, there's actually sexual wow. selection on their aposomatic coloration, so. It was a combination of the fact that males were more brightly coloured than females, so their aposomatic coloration was even more fierce and intense. And then they did um, an experiment where they tried to see which kind of males females preferred by manipulating uh, the different colours of males in choice experiments. And they found that females actually preferred brightly coloured males, so there was a sexual selection for the best aposomatic coloration coming from the females. Mm -hmm. So while the males which are most brightly coloured, are also the most conspicuous to predators. They're also the most sexy to the females. So as you say, there's this, you know, that's just one of a multitude of elements which could be tied into this. Yeah, and then you think there's a sort of geographic variation or just a individual within population variation. Throw in on top of that, uh, like cooling in frogs that we know have a big, kind of a big sort of potential to change... Uh, sexual success basically where we talked about the mantellas a few episodes ago there's a lot going on and it sounds like a mammoth task to try and unput unpick the pressures behind this but uh yeah wow it is a very very cool finding yeah really interesting and there's so many amazing frogs as well yeah oh my gosh yeah this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of poison dart frogs um because there is no way this sort of trade-off is, or successful trade-off, this balancing act is limited to just poison dart frogs, certainly not just this species. And the chance, I would put money on it existing in your sort of convergently uh, evolved mantellas, perhaps. And yeah, I bet you it's, it's way more widespread than uh, than was previously thought. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt, yeah. No, I mean, things like this don't just come along once, do they? If they work, they seem to appear. Exactly, if they work, which this is apparently working. Yeah. Right, I reckon, should we go on to paper two? Yeah, man, let's do it. Cool, so this one is by... Uh, Lawrence, Mahoney and Noonan, and this is 2018, Differential Responses of Avian and Mammalian Predators to Phenotypic Variation in Australian Brood Fogs. And this is from PLOS One. Everyone's favourite open access journal. Go read this. It's not, yeah. it's not my favourite. 
My favourite is What's TCS, Tropical Conservation Science. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I like... Um, I love that journal. Yeah, that's a good one. I like... Um, what is it called? Is it just called Reptile, Amphibian, Conservation? Is that one? Uh, there's Herpcon Bio. That's uh, Open Access Conservation Biology. Yeah. Yeah, that, I like that one. It's very approachable. It's good for the beginner. <laughs> it is. They've got some cool stuff in there. I feel yeah, like I'm always daunted about... by plus one articles because they can be unbelievably monstrous. But yeah, this the one, editing isn't always as savage as it could be, but this one's short. This one is straight to the point. Yeah. I was relieved, actually, because I read, I read for this podcast with little time and I was like, oh, God, plus one. I've got a plus one article to go. Like, jeez. But, um, yeah, it wasn't too bad. It's probably only like five or six pages. <laughs> Yeah, six pages, and it's got some very clear and easily understandable figures, which is always appreciated. Yeah, and some banging figures as well, with funny little plasticine models. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty good. <laughs> um, but let's uh, let's sort of set this paper up. Basically, there are a bunch of frogs in Australia, belonging to the genus uh, Pseudophryni. And they're pretty small, and they have dorsal coloration that sort of ranges from a brown all the way up to yellow stripes on a sort of darker black background. Yeah, some of them are funky, Um, some of them are boring. Yeah. But they're all sort of different species looking slightly different, but all relatively coherent. You know, it looks like they're multiple frogs in a series of frogs. Yeah, it's almost like... um, Mother Nature was just having a bit of a, a bit of a practice. See what looks copy good. and paste. Just change them around a little bit. Copy yeah. and paste. Yeah, yeah. What if I <laughs> what, what if I gave that one an orange head? <laughs> it looks ridiculous. <laughs> so, um, pseudophryni means fake toad. <laughs> fake toad. Yeah. So they're what fake a, toads. What a what a compliment. Yeah, I know. Imagine that. Uh, it looks like a toad, but it's not fake toad. Yeah, cool. Name that. Describe that. Move on. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> But like the other guys, poison dart frogs also uh, alkaloid toxins. So the coloration, the sort of yellow yellow stripes, thought to be aposomatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, on the underside, on the ventral side, we have a cool black and white pattern, and that is something that's seen in. Am I right in saying all these, the entire genus of these? Frogs? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's found for all of the yes. genus, it says here. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that, but yeah, that's what they've said in the paper, for sure. Excellent. So basically, we have a situation of a frog having two potential aposomatic signals, one that's quite variable between species and one that seems more consistent. Um, so basically, what these guys did was break out the plasticine models once again, and this time paint it with the... They had five different uh, colorations. One was plain, one had some sort of orange stripes on it, one had uh, yellow stripes, one had big yellow stripes that went from head to head to tail, and one just had little spots on its front elbows. Um, so they had those five types. Uh, quite importantly, that several of them were species, you know, replicating species that didn't exist in the study site. So maybe they would have a different impact on predators than ones they were familiar with. 
And in addition to those five, they also painted some models with the ventral coloration of this genus that tends to be a black with white spots. So they're testing both the aposomatic signaling that may be present on the dorsal side as well as the ventral side. And they left them out in the wild along transects. Yeah. And basically the plasticine allows you to see what's been gnawing on them because it's pliable and will leave the mark. So you can tell whether it's a bird or a mammal, basically. Yeah, and they left out loads of these models. They had 1,174 replica frogs. Um, and these were little yeah, tiny. that's a lot of frogs. You said earlier, they're small frogs. These these little models were three centimetres long. So, you know, pretty delicate to have created all these little things and painted them. And yeah, like you said, they put them along these transects and um, they were left for a week to see if they were nibbled by anything. Yes. And, and if something is and attacked by... And lo and behold, by... they were. They were. <laughs> But you can tell because if something's attacked by a bird, you get like a little U or a V-shaped beak impression, um, as well as like little holes, because birds have a habit of using their beak as like a stabbing weapon. Um, whereas with mammals, you can see because they've got the um, telltale like heterodont tooth impressions, which is, you know, mm. anyone who's ever bitten something chewy and then pulled it out of their mouth is familiar with. <laughs> or has been bitten, some, been bitten by something and examined the bite mark on them. Yes, mm-hmm, quite so. Yeah, and some got eaten, didn't they? But not that many. No, this is always the sort of um, sad side of doing these like plasticine model studies is regardless of however many you read, the number that actually get taken by animals is so small for the amount of effort that has to be put in. Like props to people who do these things because that's a lot of frogs. Yeah. And how many got, got attacked? 45. Yeah. So 45 out of 1,174 were actually attacked by anything. Well, attacked and were left, because there were also 127 that just went missing. Yeah, I think children might have collected some. (laughs) Yeah, it's the the toddlers have returned again to uh, (laughs) get in the way of scientific study. (laughs) They're just anti-science. They're riding the wave of anti-science feeling. Well, actually, they they didn't actually point the finger at toddlers. No, they, they pointed the finger at uh, Australian bush turkeys and superb lyrebirds. Or at least that was their suspicions. These, these birds might have sort of come along and just gone down the whole length of a transect, wiping out every little plasticine model they could <laughs> and like burying it in the leaf litter. You'd think eating one plasticine model would be enough to realise that they're bad, but I guess... Well, I don't, I don't think it was suggesting that they were just eating all the plasticine. I think it was just in the process of foraging in the area they were burying um, them. <laughs> maybe they actually discovered they quite liked the taste of plasticine. I mean, like, Play-Doh has a very distinctive and actually kind of delicious smell. If, uh, if uh, they were seeking some salt... And it was made... What was it? It was made out of a specific type of clay, wasn't it? It's called... Um, what was it? Monster clay. If monster clay is, has high salt content, then I wouldn't be surprised things taking it as a sort of salt lick alternative. <laughs> dear, oh dear. Um, but yeah, as you said, jokes aside, there was 18 bird attacks and 27 mammal attacks. Yes, um, it's, no, it's no laughing matter. There were a lot of bird attacks. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Savage bird attacks. There, weren't, there was no difference in between the number of attacks among naturally occurring dorsal phenotypes. So it seems like all the dorsal phenotypes were equally good at not being attacked or being attacked, depending on which way you look at it. They were all attacked yeah. the same amount. Including, including those that should have been novel to the study area and those that were 
replicating species that were actually present. Yeah. Although saying that, what was it? It was like 130 kilometers away. I can imagine that most of the mammals which are present 130 kilometers away are probably the same mammals, and especially birds, that are present in the study area. So uh, potentially, that... yeah. Yeah. So I don't know whether that it being you know if you're going to use a novel something maybe go you want to be a bit further away. Um, but then you probably don't have this genus present. That's I bet you that's the sort of trade off is that. You can only go so far while you still have the same genus about. Oh yeah, but, I'm sure. Yeah, but, but they said I, the, I don't know how widely spread pseudophrynia well, is. They they said in the paper that they used it as a a novel. They used it as a novel color pattern, despite. Yeah, so it said novel to the region, but I mean, to me, if you're examining, I mean, if their intention. Well, it was similar to this other frog as well, corroboree, but apparently the base colour is normally black, so I don't really know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, is they weren't specifically targeting that as the study, by the sounds of it, that was more uh, an additional thing. And if I suppose if there was something discovered with that, you would expand upon it and build upon it and perhaps do a follow-up test to see exactly what was interacting to cause that pattern. Yeah, I think the point I'm trying to make is that if I was looking to um, have a completely novel phenotype, I would ensure it was a novel phenotype by inventing it, rather than using something from 130 miles away, or kilometres away. But anyway. Mm, but the problem with inventing is that it may just be sort of biologically infeasible to be, <laughs> right? Yeah, okay, or maybe just get one from a frog which is from the other side of the world. Anyway. As long as it could, as long as you were still confident that the predators would be recognizing it as a frog and a potential food item, then yes. Because if it was so novel that it just doesn't even look like food, then you're just testing if they would eat a brightly coloured piece of plasticine. Yeah, but wasn't that the point of why they were using novel models? Because it was like that little bit different than the ones they'd encounter. But still test. recognizable like a, like as a, a frog. Yeah, I suppose so. Okay, well... It, it would be a balancing act, is all I'm saying. Yeah, okay. I'd have just painted it like a strawberry dart frog. That would have gotten there. Well, why not Why not do that as well? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you can only make so many thousands of models before your hands are tired. <laughs> yeah, and once you introduce one additional colour, then that's like several hundred additional models yeah. you have to make. So, uh, no, nah, fair enough. Yeah, um... But yeah, so while, like like we said, there was no difference in the kind of attack ratio for the dorsal patterns, which occur in the wild, um, they did find that the black and white ventral reticulated pattern, which is the the, the pattern from the underneath, um, had a different amount of attacks on it. Yes, um, compared to the dorsal. Yeah, so... Um, yeah. Yeah, they... Uh, Yeah, so sorry, that was it. That was the big finding, was that... I'm going to just start again. <laughs> so yeah, the dorsal, yep. the ventral pattern was attacked differently than the dorsal pattern. And uh, birds, but not mammals, actually attacked the reticulated ventral, sort of black and white belly pattern, more uh, as compared to the dorsal phenotypes. So birds were not put off, while mammals actually were. Yes, and this was... Um, 
consistent across both the local and non-local models, right? Yeah. This was, for everything, it was a consistent pattern. Slightly different levels of significance, but all were significant. And the mammals, again, it was consistent across the board. Yeah. Yeah. So really, what is left to be explained is why there is this difference between the dorsal coloration working and then apparently them both working equally, perhaps, with the non-significant differences with the mammals. Right? That's yeah. That's essentially the, the discussion. And I suppose it makes a lot of sense that the dorsal as opposed to the ventral uh, coloration is making a big difference in birds because birds are going to tend to see these frogs from the sky and from above than uh, ventrally. Yeah. So what you might have is a situation that the frog basically has two selective pressures that have driven two different solutions on two different parts of the body. One that's geared towards more avian predators and one that can help prevent mammalian predation, perhaps. Yeah? Yeah, although they actually didn't find any difference, did they, in the um, attack rate of dorsal versus black and white signals by mammals? I think I might have misspoken earlier. No. No, yeah. No, no, you you didn't misspeak, but there was no... Yeah, we said there was no, no difference between dorsal and ventral for the mammals. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. But the trick is that you're... So, so I guess that does mean that the, or it suggests that the ventral is having some effect because the mammals, oh, I don't know, does it even say that? It's a difficult one to dig into because you're not, you almost don't quite have the control you want for testing the mammalian predation because you need a sort of non-ventral, plain, plain back, plain black ventral to compare it against perhaps yeah yeah what i find interesting as well they mention in the conclusions about um the movement and how a lot of predators obviously are attracted to movement but they say a lot of these frogs will actually stay still when they're detected and then so these mm. models represent i mean i would you know they're not staying still all the time so obviously i don't think you can say that a, a still model definitely can really ever represent an actual live animal um and also something else which I think is interesting, um, which they don't really touch on, is the fact that black and white, um, it's a ventral coloration, right? And yeah. they're not going to see the ventral unless the frog has either flipped itself, which I don't get the impression they do as a defense mechanism. I think they don't do that. They just end up being flipped. But also, if you flip something over really close to you and it's suddenly black and white, there's like a second there where that's like a startle because it comes out of nowhere and they don't really address mm. that as a thing so it might be different the reaction to a bird which you know if it's accustomed to being startled by this color and then realizing oh actually i can eat that um if it just sees that upside down coloration from a distance it has time to process that signal and then attack where uh, if it's the element it, of surprise playing into it yeah, you reckon they don't mention yeah, that which possible. i think could be something worth considering i don't know not my field but yeah that that was something which i was because i mean if you look at that belly coloration of that frog i mean 
that's really really obvious but if it came to you as it's like a super shock, obvious absolutely yeah if, if you were presented with that where before something was brown you'd, you'd take a step back because you know black and white i mean especially to us mammals black and white put together it frightens me i think of a banded crate i'm scared <laughs> but the other note okay you may be scared of this frog but if you can successfully eat it without being poisoned then the aposematism is almost a sort of empty threat. Yeah. And we are presuming that the birds are capable of eating these frogs because they're going for still what we would presume could be successful aposematism for the dorsal. Mm. And if you just see a frog that you know you can eat upside down, then that's yeah. just a free meal, isn't it? Yeah. So there's some level of how successful is the aposematism anyway? That's also playing into this. Or at least yeah. I feel like there may be. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know how toxic. They're not actually... Are they toxic or distasteful, these toxins? Like, well, that's the trick, is how... Uh, they definitely... Know. They have. They say distasteful alkaloid toxins. Yeah. So maybe the trick is that you just don't have a strong enough aposematism for birds for them to care that much and yeah. if one's upside down then they think yeah this is going to be all right i know that some frogs when they're when they're dead some australian frogs the potency of their toxins uh, reduce over time we discussed god i can't remember whose paper it was but the one about uh, death adders leaving frogs yeah um for certain different amounts of time depending on the species uh, to allow those toxins to degrade so they're not as bad. Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's definitely more to be found here. It's a very cool initial study that there is basically two aposomatic signals on these frogs and they are reacting or yeah. ca causing different reactions in different clades of predators. That's mm -hmm. the takeaway as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, again, it's the same as the paper we just previously read. There's so much more to it than just looking at the the coloration, isn't there? There's the, yeah, you know, there's the distance of observer. There's the behavior adaptation that goes along with it. Because I mean, like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's extremely nuanced, and it's becoming apparent that many of these animals have more than one trick up their sleeve. Yeah, but it's also really cool to see how these two tricks. There is a demonstrable difference in other creatures' behaviour to them. I mean, that's yeah. pretty cool evidence for. Yeah, let's uh, let's carry on looking at them. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely another cool paper. So, um, hey, should we go on to the world famous species of the bye week? Let's go on to the world famous species of the bye week. And it's a frog. <laughs> of course it is. How could we, you know, how could we? How could we? Hamidi uh, Farajala and Smith, published in Zootaxa, as so many of these new descriptions are. A new megophrice from southwestern Sumatra, Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So basically we're moving a little bit away from the coloration and a little bit, well, I suppose not completely away from the coloration. We're moving from aposomatic to a frog, which is, I think you can quite safely say, purely cryptic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is a cool looking frog. And um, we said last, well, the last sort of thing, the genus Megafrice just means big toad. <laughs> big Toad. What, Frice also means toad as well as Phryne? I'm assuming it's the same root, no? I think it's probably the same root adjusted for the laws of um, binomial taxonomy. Mm, that would make sense, wouldn't it? But then why isn't it Mega Phryne? Maybe it's a gender thing. Lan has genders, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Either way. I might be wrong. Maybe we'll get a connection. Maybe we'll get a correction of that. Maybe. Shall we describe this beautiful, beautiful... Yeah, so they found it in Sumatra, didn't they? They did. Whilst sort of doing some reptile surveys around a village in the Kekataman, Kekamatan district. Um, which is Yeah, another place young. in the world that has so much left to be described, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, so whereabouts is this? Oh, okay, so it's sort of... It's quite close to the southern tip of Sumatra, this place. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, go on, let's describe what it looks like. It's a cool-looking beastie. Basically, it is a pointy grey leaf monster. Yeah, yeah, that's about all you need to know about it. It's uh, Pointy nose, pointy sides of the face, pointy eyebrows, uh, pointy sort of... Bits on its legs. Yeah, it's even got a yeah. pointy feet. Pointy feet. Yeah. Pointy. Like, it's got like lateral. Pointy leaf frog. Pointy leaf <laughs> lateral lines. If you turn them upside down, they look really upset. That's what that photo is telling me. <laughs> look at it. Well, it goes from photo B where it's like this proud specimen, like. Hey, why are you shining your torch on me? And then in photo C, it's like, oh my god, <laughs> upside down, <laughs> you've humiliated me. It's completely undignified, yeah. yeah. And then in D, you can just see it's like post being upside down. It looks absolutely livid. <laughs> Unforgivable. Uh, but yeah, not cool. a monstrous, monstrous frog. But we're talking. What are we talking? We're talking an SVL of. 36, 37, with females being a little bigger, being an SVL uh, 38, but wait, no, sorry, I didn't give ranges, sort of 37 to 46 millimetres for the males, and sort of 39 to 79 for the females. Hmm. So, not massive. Potentially larger females, a bit of sexual dimorphism going on there, but then we are only looking at a sample of six. Hmm. So... That's the trouble. When you name a genus Megaphrice, and then you find out there's other things related to it that aren't that mega, you look a bit of a fool. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but the name is good. The name is great. Yeah, We have a species name. We are talking about uh, Megaphrice Lansip. And uh, Lansip is the Indonesian word for pointed, which hopefully, as our description of the frog justifies, is pretty apt. And we even have suggested common names. We have a suggested English common name of pointed horned frog. 
which I like, straight to the point. There's no way you're going to get that mixed up too easily, presuming no. there are not other, like, crazy horned frogs all about the place, which uh, there might be. Hey, they're not going to be pointier than this thing. And we... Oh, well, hmm, you say that. <laughs> Isn't there a frog that looks like the devil? Yeah, okay, I probably shouldn't have said that. Now that's just going to be... Someone's going to describe a frog next week that's just, like, ridiculous, like... Looks like a shuriken. It'll be uh, it'll be a super pointy toad. It'll be Dutifrinus, uh mega megastictus, megastictus. Yeah. What is it? It'll just look like a it'll look like a tiny amphibian hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! Incredible. That... Um, yeah, so this is a grey frog, and uh, spiky as all hell. It's about as spiky as a frog can be. I'm still standing by that. But also, it's got a massive <laughs> head. It's got a massive head. Bloated it head. It does have a massive head. It's got a really wide head. So we're talking yeah. about a, the, the holotype is uh, 36, 37 millimetres long, and its head is 17 and a half millimetres wide. Yeah. So it's pretty stocky. It's like sort of... Wide, short frog, but pointy. Yeah, and um, pretty awesome. It's still a mystery. This frog, they don't know anything about it in its larval stages. They don't know about what noises it makes. The ones they caught were obviously pretty shy. Probably still upset from being flipped upside down. Um, and the holotype was collected from a coffee plantation near the edge of secondary forest, which suggests maybe they're sort of slightly tolerant of humans. Who can tell? But yeah, but at the same time, it could be a detection thing, or yeah, <sighs> yeah, it yeah. could be. They could have just been weirdos. Yeah, and they say that habitat loss and exploitation for the pet trade are likely to be the main threats for new species. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so so a correction to what we're talking: it's a really ugly frog. Um, it smells bad. <laughs> um, it's got a really hideous face. If you look at it, it'll probably make you cry. Uh, don't go anywhere near it. Um, <laughs> Also, I hear they just insult you constantly if you keep them captive. All I know is that if I'm going to get myself a pet frog, I want it to be one which will happily sit upside down in my hand for long periods. <laughs> and this one will look incredibly grumpy <laughs> yeah. to do that. Absolutely fuming. Um, yeah, really cool little frog. Welcome to science. Welcome to science, little frog. And, um, uh, yeah. Oh, it's also worth mentioning that uh, just in terms of thoroughness of this paper, did do genetic work. It's not just purely uh, morphological stuff. Yeah. Which we forget to mention in some of them, but uh, it is effort that is nice to see when it's put in, when it's put in because you get a nice sort of tree with a relatedness to all the other species, and it's nice to have this additional line of evidence that. Uh, is potentially less susceptible to being tricked by uh, sort of convergent evolution stuff. Yeah. And, uh, oh, they had a re- they had a nice line as well, which I I quite liked, where they basically said that this new species is using whatever metric they used to measure it was sort of fourteen to eighteen percent different from all the other species in the uh, genus. Was if you look at the most closely related uh, two species, the difference between those two species was only fourteen to sort of fourteen point eight. Uh, so it's 
sorry, not even that. It was it was around ten percent difference, and it was around fourteen percent difference from the new species to its most closely related. So essentially, what I'm saying with a lot of numbers and possibly a poorly worded explanation is that it is more separated genetically than other species of that genus which have already been accepted as legitimate species. Hmm. So a pretty solid case as far as I'm reading in this paper. Well, provided you put stock in the previous splitting, yeah. Yes, yes, of course, yeah. Hmm. yeah. But, but the yeah. point is the, the, the accepted or presumed accepted splitting of that genus at least is holding true for this species yeah 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 cool um right on well there you go species of the bye week megafris what was it megafris lansip lansip that sounds like man yeah that sip you hear that all the time in indonesian language and in thai too yeah you have what's its indonesian common name which is cool to have is uh katak katak tanduk lansip yeah Katak Tanduk Lansip. Which presumably just means pointed horn. However, is Indonesian a tonal language? And if it is, then I would be saying something that probably makes absolutely zero sense. Yeah, you yeah, I mean you've offended an entire nation with that. <laughs> I I can only offer my sincerest apologies. <laughs> right. Cool. Right, so that ends it up. That that's it. Color changing, well, not color changing, but um, mimicking du- on, duality know. color, sort of dual purpose coloration yeah. in frogs. Yeah, that's what we'll call it. Excellent. Um, have you got any other any other business this week? It's bi week. Uh, yes, yes, I do. Go on then. Boy. Um, let me just bring it up. Here it is. Um, some people found a fossilized. Mm. Not is is it fossilized? Does it count as fossil? I suppose. Um, Either way, they found the latter half of a snake in some amber from Myanmar. It must. And it be. looks to have been there for like ninety nine million years. Yeah, yeah. The um, the tagline said a hundred million, but <laughs> they're exaggerating. It's ninety nine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there's room for error. What's it called? Um, Zyophis. Zyophis myamarensis. Yeah. Myamarensis. Mm-hmm. First ever fossil yes. of uh, embryonic to neonate snake. So that's pretty cool. Yes, and the BBC has some art from uh, Chung Chung Tat, I guess is who it's attributed to, which somehow from the... Uh, latter half of the snake has managed to reconstruct the entire thing and it looks adorable and it's blue and it kind of looks like a slug eating snake yeah there's another there's another one which looks like a corn snake super cute but all baby snakes are cute so i don't think that's too much of a leap (laughs) yeah i'm 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 willing to believe this until i see something that uh is told to me is more reliable (laughs) it's a nice piece of artwork it's a cool finding um yeah. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about it. I just wanted to sort of say it yeah, because well, it's cool and it's snake related. And the big thing was that it was found, um, it wasn't found on Gondwana. It was found in Asia, uh, which was then Laurasia. So um, it must have rafted 
from Gondwana to Laurasia, which, um, yeah, is quite cool. There's a suggestion that this is the first evidence that snakes were travelling about before um, before these land masses collided. Hmm. Swimming about or getting picked up by uh, birds and taken away? <laughs> well, yeah, who knows? I mean, maybe they had sophisticated travel. Maybe they had their very Asian version. Their very own version of Wilson, the football. <laughs> or, or, yeah, or some sort of monorail. <laughs> um, yeah, that's it, though. Cool snake. They don't, do they have a link to the paper in the BBC thing? Uh, I better do. I read a blog by one of the authors. It's published in... Okay, they say that it's been published in scientific uh, science advances, but I don't see a link. That's... Um... BBC, do better. <sighs> okay, well, I I will track that down for the show notes. I've got it here. They linked it in the blog that I read, so I can... Oh, fantastic. It's entitled A Mid-Cretaceous Embryonic to Neonate Snake in Amber from Myanmar, published in Scientific Advances. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, cool news. Yeah, big up. Big up. Snake's been around for ages, and they'll be, they'll be around for ages after we go. <laughs> I hope so, man. <laughs> Yeah. I really hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, um, all that remains to be said then is um, you can get us on facebook.com slash herphighlights. Uh, we're on Twitter at herphighlights. Uh, we're on Patreon. If you want to donate to the podcast, we'd be exceptionally grateful. Patreon.com slash herphighlights. And if you donate got... and pick a topic just like this, right? Yeah. And um, yeah. if you want to get in touch with us via email, um, herphighlights at gmail.com excellent oh and you can yes. buy you can buy t-shirts <laughs> just search if, herp if you highlights. are so inclined red bubble yeah there are there are toads there are snakes there are a couple of lizards sweet alright well yeah thanks for listening yes thank you for listening we good? 